Please take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll read verses 7 through 11. The Word of God says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You can be seated, children. You can be dismissed to Children's Church. Well, this morning is our final sermon in our series on prayer from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And uh, our text today builds on a foundation that's already been laid, so I just kind of want to remind us where we've been so far as we've considered prayer to the Father uh, from this Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon of Christ. So first, we looked at At the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, or the disciples' prayer, the one to whom we pray, our Father. Second, the one who we honor, hallowed be your name. The one on whom we depend, the one who delivers us from evil. Then the treasuring of heaven. And finally, last week, the prayer and anxieties of life. And today is the completion of the series where we will study the Father's delight in our good. Prayer in light of the Father's delight in our good. Let's pray. Father, I want to come before you this morning just recognizing your greatness in all that you've done throughout the course of history in your creation and in the pinnacle of your creation, especially, Lord, the image bearers that you've made to reflect your glory and your reign on the earth. Lord, that you would have made a way for them even when they spurned your ways, when they rejected your glory, to bring them back into fellowship with you, into purpose. And so, Lord, I want to thank you, and I want to ask you this morning as we consider our relationship with you and who you are toward us in that relationship, that you would teach us, that you would illuminate the word by your spirit, that that you would make me simply a mouthpiece to speak the truth of your word to the hearts of your people, and that you would, through the preaching of your word, change us more today into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew 7, 7 through 11, this text is a great place. It's an appropriate place to finish our series on prayer because it's the final treatment of Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, of our communication with the Father. It also summarizes and concludes what we've learned so far, affirming God's disposition, his his countenance, his attitude toward his children as we come to him in prayer. So I want us to see three points this morning. You'll see them in your notes. Three points from this text as they relate to our communication with the Father. Those three things are the requisite, the result, and the reason for prayer. 
So first of all, the requisite, and it's not a common word, but it's a word I chose not only because it starts with an R, but also because it has a very precise definition that is exactly what I wanted it to convey. The requisite simply means an essential requirement, the essential requirement of our pursuit of God in prayer. We would all agree, if I ask each one of you, I'm sure you would respond to me in the affirmative, we could agree together, that prayer is essential for Christian life. We would agree on that point. However, we would also probably, if we're honest, we would have to say that we don't always pray like we believe that's true. Often we don't pray like that's true until we're forced to our knees by circumstances, until we're forced to pray in desperation because of different events in our lives. Of course, we saw from the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, that independence and self-sufficiency are a delusion that we are often engaged in. The reality is we're always dependent, always dependent, every moment, completely, desperately dependent on the grace of God for all of life. Jesus also taught us this far in his sermon that prayer is necessary, it's essential, because in prayer we express our worship, we are conformed to his will, we ask for our daily provision, we ask for forgiveness and for deliverance from sin and temptation. It is essential for the Christian life. It's not optional. It's not negotiable. And so, this morning, Jesus continues to teach us the necessity of prayer here in verse 7, which says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So the instructions here Uh, These three clauses, to ask, to seek, and to knock, are all expressions of the pursuit of God, but especially in prayer, especially as we communicate with Him. Seeking and knocking are metaphors for prayer. Asking is clearly communication. We're, We're communicating with God our requests and making them known. So the mode of the request, the the essential requirement, the requisite is the request. To make a request, ask and you will receive. These are active imperatives, which is to say that, as we've learned, imperatives are an instruction. It's a command for us to do. This is something that you need to do. Ask, seek, and knock. This is not a profound principle right? It's not hard to understand. If you need something, you need to ask for it. As Rob just read from James chapter 4, in the the middle of this admonishment of the people of God who are exhibiting the characteristics of the flesh, pursuing their own passions, and responding to one another, interacting with one another according to the passions of the flesh and not the spirit, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Here's one of the problems. You, you simply do not have what you desire or what you need because you're not asking for it. I'm surprised at how many times words like those have to be said in my home. I can't understand the whiny noise you're making or the silence. I can't read your mind. You know, telepathy is not a thing. You need to ask. If you need something, ask for it. Use your words. 
You'd think Rachel would get tired of telling me that, but she's a trooper. But no, children. Our children need to learn how to communicate what their needs are. They begin life by communicating through crying. That's all they can do is cry. And so parents learn to interpret what the crying means at various times and try to pacify and stop the crying, whatever it takes. But then as they grow and learn to communicate through language, then they can express what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they need. And we want that. We want them to grow in that. Unfortunately, we as adults often need to learn the same lesson over again. We complain about things that we wish were different in our life. We identify all kinds of things we want to change, both inside of us and outside of us. But how often then are we taking those things, instead of just mumbling about how, how we wish things were different, how often do we take those things to God in prayer? If you need something, ask your Father. But what are we asking for? Here, with this promise, this guarantee that if you ask, you will receive, what are we asking for? And I think that's one of the most difficult questions of this text. What exactly are we asking for? I would say it is this, the substance of the request is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As we look at the context, the instruction when we look just at verses 7 and 8, we, it seems kind of vague, like, okay, if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open to you. And everyone who does that receives and, and, and finds, and it will be open to them. But what, what specifically are we asking for that we will receive? The instruction seems so open-ended. It seems, it seems uh, just so ambiguous and universal that it's often been misinterpreted and therefore misapplied. Think the prosperity gospel. Think the word of faith movement, where if I pray this formula, if I just kind of use these words in my request to God, he has to give me what I'm asking for, okay? And so I can pray for anything that my heart desires. I can pray for anything I think I want in this life, and he's going to accommodate that request because I can ask and I will receive. Well, if that's the case, we can just ask for whatever we want and we'll receive it. I'll take a Lamborghini. Thank you. But maybe that's not what the Word of God is telling us. So here's a hint. Here's a clue. Verse 11, what does God give to his children? Good gifts. And so we have to question whether or not our definition of good things, good gifts, is the same as God's definition of the good gifts that he gives. So what are we asking for? Is it the initial coming to God in faith at conversion? Is that what we're talking about? After all, Jesus is talking about the kingdom, being part of the kingdom. Well, we can say that it includes this. It includes the initial coming to God in faith. Jesus is not only describing that, however. He says more about the ongoing life of discipleship instead of just the beginning of the life of discipleship. So while seeking God begins with, with regeneration, the Spirit making one alive, opening eyes to see the glory of Christ and the worth of the kingdom of heaven, it continues then uh, with, with 
him creating a new people, people that live according to the righteousness they've received. And so we see if we step back a little bit from the, the tree of asking what, what is it that we're asking for, what is it that we're guaranteed to receive, we look at the forest for a moment, the whole picture, the big picture of what God is or Christ is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, he's teaching, he's introducing ideas to a people who, many of, many of which are religious, they're Jews, they have come to, uh, to a pietism or an expectation that God is revealing himself to them. And he's teaching them that he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. All of the things God has instructed, all the prophecies, all the revelation of God is culminating and being fulfilled in Christ. He is the Messiah. He is ushering in the kingdom of heaven and creating the new covenant people of that kingdom. And what he's saying is this. Look at the, look at the condition in Matthew 5.20 for entrance into this kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And the question here is, what righteousness is he talking about? Josh mentioned it last week. What is this righteousness? Well, it's not the imputed righteousness of Christ that he's envisioning here. It's a righteousness that is better than the Pharisees in quantity and quality. A righteousness that's fundamentally different than the righteousness that is all we have to offer on our own to God's filthy rags. It's a different righteousness, which of course necessitates the foundation of the righteousness of Christ, right? We have no hope of being justified by God, declared righteous, acceptable to him, unless we receive the imputed to our account righteousness of Christ. There's no hope for being acceptable in God's sight without that. However, this can't be our only category for righteousness because it's not the Bible's only category for righteousness. And so we need to see that the righteousness that is given to us by Christ that makes us acceptable to God actually produces something in us. It makes us new creations. So Jesus here is consistent with Paul. When Paul talks in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God, there's fruit that will be produced, and it can be seen. He agrees with James when he argues that faith without works is useless. It's dead faith. The gospel doesn't just justify us with Christ's righteousness, but it also produces in us a personal, active, functional righteousness that we are growing in by God's grace. We're not yet what we will be, right? There's still sin that remains in us, but if we are Christ, if we are part of the kingdom of heaven, there is a righteousness that's being produced in us. He says that a few verses later, Christ does in Matthew 7, 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You will know them by their fruit. There will be evidence of the real change that he's forming in his people by the gospel. Once we found our identity only in Adam, our father who passed on the curse, the sin nature to us. Once we only found our identity there, and naturally, 
our character exhibited the sinfulness that we received from him. But now, when we find our identity in Christ, why would we not expect that our personal character would begin to reflect the righteousness of Christ, who now defines us? That's what we're praying for. It is Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things that you need for daily life, all these other things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom and righteousness. This is supported by, if you look at what Christ has called his disciples to do, he is teaching his disciples If you look in the previous verses for context, what is he asking, what is he instructing for his disciples? He's saying, be discerning about who you pursue with the gospel for the kingdom so that you don't cast pearls to be trampled on by pigs and so that you don't give what is holy to dogs. Wow, that sounds challenging to be that discerning. Use a just and consistent standard in your judgment so that you're not judging hypocritically. Seek the kingdom in his righteousness. Don't be anxious about anything. Serve God, not money. Invest in the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdoms of earth. Pray faithfully, fast, give to the needy, love your enemies. Pray for the ones who persecute you. How will we ever have any hope of doing these things, of producing this righteousness unless God is producing it in us. If we look at the parallel account of this sermon, of this teaching in Luke, Luke gives us a little more insight. He makes it a little less ambiguous, a little clearer. In Luke, it says that how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so here we recognize that this is what we're asking for, We are asking for the product of the Holy Spirit in our lives, producing real, functional holiness, righteousness, so we reflect Christ. And if we can't do this on our own, we need God to do this in us, right? Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is working in you both to give you the desire to do what is good and the ability to do what is good. So it's God producing it. It's not us. We have to be careful, okay? We have to be careful not to become so introspective that we are looking at our own lives uh, only. We're only focused on our own righteousness that we're producing. We, we take our eyes off of Christ. That's not the goal. But we recognize that God is the only one who can produce these good things in us. And so we rest entirely on his work, his grace. So what can we do if we need God to produce this righteousness in us that characterizes the people of his kingdom? We pray. We pray that God would give us this. We ask and we seek and we knock and he will give it to us. So we're praying for everything that's necessary for life according to the will of God for us as citizens of his kingdom. By the way, this is not just a one-time request. This is not, I ask God for this one day in my life, and I'm good to go for the rest of time. The idea here, the language indicates by, by the fact that these are 
active imperatives, that this is, this is active but also progressive. It's, it's, it's something that we continue to do, so much so that some translations, maybe you see if you have NLT or, or Holman Christian Standard, you see that it says, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. It's a way of life that characterizes the disciples of Christ. We continue to pursue God and his righteousness. We continue to pursue the grace that flows down from his open hands. This is our disposition toward the Father, that, that with open hands we reach up knowing who our Father is to receive the good things of his providence, the things that he promises to us. We keep praying. And what is the result? The result, we ask, God answers, and gives us what we need. Look at verses 7 and 8. We see a very beautiful presentation of this truth, this guarantee, in a very logical way. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And then the same thing which has been stated in a personal way, you do this, you do this. Now, in a universal way, everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, to him it will be opened. And so we see this, this logical presentation. It's like, it's a logical pattern that, that's two premises, two truths that, that both establish and support a conclusion. It's like this. Maybe you've heard this. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. The Bible is using the same type of pattern of logic here, Jesus is, when he says, essentially, everyone who asks receives. That's established. Everyone who asks receives. You are included in everyone Therefore, if you ask, you will receive. This is a promise. It's not hypothetical. It's not maybe or you might receive. It's if you ask, you will undoubtedly receive. It's a promise of God for his children. You might say, well, I'm not sure about that. I've asked God for a lot of things that I haven't received. Well, we should talk about that because that's a, that's a valid question. The reality is that sometimes we ask for things that we perceive are good. We think they'd be good for us or for the people around us. The problem is we don't have the omniscience of God. We are not sovereign. We are not planning the events of our lives. We have not ordained the events of our lives. And we're not omniscient, and so we don't know always what's best. So we ask for things sometimes that we think are good, we think they're wise, but in reality, perhaps, like the children in this illustration in verse uh, 10, maybe instead of asking for bread, we're actually asking for a stone. Or instead of asking for fish, we're actually asking for a snake. And so God knows better than we do what is good for us. So sometimes we're just asking for the wrong things. Or we ask for things for the wrong reasons. Again, to James 4, you ask and you do not receive 
because you asked wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so this promise, which it is, it's a promise, a guarantee, but it's not a blank check. It's not, I can ask God for whatever I feel like asking according to my selfish desires, and I'll receive it. Carson says, such praying, as is described here by Christ, such praying is not for selfish ends, but always for the glory of God, according to kingdom concerns. So here the Sermon on the Mount lays down the righteousness, sincerity, humility, purity, and love expected of Jesus' followers. And now it assures that such gifts are theirs if sought. So that is the promise. That is what we're praying for. You might pray. I don't know the things that you pray for, but I would guess that some of you maybe are praying for a certain job, a certain career. You have a a pursuit in mind, aspirations. Will you get those things? I don't know. I can't say. You might be praying for a spouse. You might be praying for children. You might be praying for, for more financial provision. You might be praying for healing from an illness or a disease. You might be praying for the reconciliation of a relationship, a broken relationship in your life. Will you receive those things? I don't know. I don't have that information. I don't know what's good. But I know that if those things are good, ultimately good for you, then God will give them. And so we trust the goodness of our Father. So I don't know if you'll get and receive all the things that you pray for, all the things you ask for in this life. That's up to the wisdom of God and his goodness. What I do know is that if you seek and if you pray for the kingdom and his righteousness, you will receive it because that is the will of God for you. It says right here in his word, that is the will of God for you. And here's a a principle that, uh, that helps us in our prayer when we Maybe don't know how to pray or what to pray. We fear, hopefully, praying things that are not the will of God. We don't want to be engaged in that. And so, if our prayers are tethered to the word of God, then they will be according to the will of God. Our prayers are tethered to the will of God, what he wants when we pray the word of God, what he said. Some of us maybe aren't praying for these things, the things of the kingdom of heaven, righteousness, because maybe some of us don't want these things. Some of us have ideas of all kinds of things that we want in this life, but they're not the kingdom and they're not the righteousness of Christ. It's not to become a disciple of Jesus. So those prayers go unanswered things that you're praying for. There are things that God has not instructed you to pray for. Not only that, but there's no relationship. Your sin has made a separation between you and the Father. And if that's the case, then this promise isn't yours. Because this promise is from a father to his children, but not everyone is his child. If that's the case, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I pray that he opens your eyes to the value, the treasure, the worth of Christ, his kingdom, 
his righteousness, that you would trust in his provision, his death, that, it, that atones for sin, that receives the punishment of God for sin, and his righteousness offered freely to you to make you a child of his kingdom. Finally, why do we pray and why are we guaranteed when we pray to receive these things that Christ has instructed for us to pray for? Why is this a guarantee? Well, the reason is because the Father delights in giving us good things. The Father delights in giving us these good things. So verses uh, 9 through 11. Now we see, or, Christ says, or, do you suppose, it's as if to say, do you suppose there's an alternative? Do you suppose that it's not true that everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and everyone who knocks to him it will be opened? Do you suppose there's an alternative? And here he gives us an illustration, an analogy to prove that that is true. So there's a comparison and a contrast here between the heavenly father and human parents. Makes it familiar to us. It makes us to understand because we think back to the influence of our parents on us. We think about those of us who are our parents, our influence on our children, how those relationships work. So first of all, the comparison. Most of us can look at the parents that God gave us and we see that they tried their best to give us good things. They didn't want what was bad for us. They didn't intentionally try to harm us. They wanted to help us. They wanted us to have what was good for us. They wanted us to grow and to be healthy and to have joy because they loved us. I know that's not universal. I know that's not universal for all of us. Some of us can't look to our parents and say that we received that goodness. But it's a general principle. Most parents, in general, are not looking to harm their children. They're looking to do good to their children. We're not looking to give our children a stone when they ask for bread or a snake, which is dangerous and harmful, when they ask for fish if they're hungry. Now, some of us, some of our kids act like we're giving them stones and snakes when we say no to the Happy Meal or, heaven forbid, make them take a bite of a vegetable, okay? But we know that generally we want to do good things for our children. We, we have the general ability and knowledge to give our children good things. So that's the comparison. Earthly fathers, the heavenly father, they want to give good things to their children. But here's the contrast. There's a major difference between earthly parents, human parents, and the heavenly father. And here's what that is. Look at what Jesus says. Which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father? Okay? You are evil. You are evil. Did you hear that, kids? Your parents are evil. As they scoot away from their parents. But guess what? So are you. I'm sorry to say, this is what the Bible says. This is, this is not just, this is not just we are limited as parents in giving our kids good things because, well, we just, we just have human limitations. I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, omniscient. I don't know always what's best. Or maybe I'm limited by financial constraints, those types of things. We might 
make those arguments. This is not what Jesus is saying. We don't just have an inability because of natural limitations. We are evil. It's a moral indictment. We are wicked. Jesus is well aware of the sinfulness of humanity. He knew it before the foundation of the world. And so, as we think about our parenting, we have to recognize that we are still tainted by sin, the sin that remains in us. We're still living in the flesh. Therefore, we are still susceptible and enticed to sin. And therefore, we have to question our motives, even in our parenting of the children we love and cherish. We wrestle against selfishness. We wrestle against impatience. We are evil. But even so, we know how to give good things to our children, to the best of our ability. So if we can, who are evil, how much more can the Father who is not evil, the Father who is in heaven, the Father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the Father who created all things and rules and reigns over them, the sovereign and good Father is able so much more than any earthly parent to give good things to his children. God the Father is in heaven. He's not on earth and he's not corrupted by sin in any way. This is the Father who gives us good things. Notice a pattern briefly. How much more? How much more will God give good things to those who ask him? It's similar to the how much more valuable are you than the birds? How much more will God take care of your daily needs, your clothing, than the, the lilies, the flowers of the field? How much more God is better in every way to earthly things, his creation, and even the provision of human parents. By the way, this is not just saying that God is able, God is able to give you what you need. It's not a matter of ability, it's a matter of willingness. God has the willingness and eagerness even, we could say, to give us good things. And we need to see that this is who God is. This is the disposition of God toward his children. We struggle sometimes, I think, and we, we, we fail to go to God in prayer, bringing our request, even confessing our sin, because we fear that his disposition toward us might change if he finds something out about us. Or his disposition to us is not kind. He may tolerate us, but he doesn't really love us, doesn't really find joy in us, and that's not what the Bible tells us. God is not like a human father wincing, you know, fighting back a nervous breakdown as he hands the keys over to his 16-year-old son. Okay? That's not what God is like. God is not stingy. God is not reluctant in giving good things. He delights in us and in doing good to us. This is part of the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41. God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart 
and all my soul. Does that sound like God is holding anything back? Does that sound like the, a disposition, an attitude toward you of, of reluctancy, of hesitance, of indifference? Couldn't be anything but delight. John 16, 24, Jesus says, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's interested in your joy. So we can fully trust in the righteousness of Christ, which is the only thing we can look to that makes us pleasing to the Father. And the Father sees us that way. Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is not holding anything back. He's like the father in the story of the prodigal son who, when the son has squandered and wasted the inheritance, the resources of his father, he's disregarded the father's ways and the relationship that he had with the father. He rejects him and goes off on his own and wastes the resources. But when he returns in humility, in brokenness, in contrition, what does the father do? It says when the son was still a long way off. The father runs out to meet him and embraces him and weeps over him and kisses him with joy that he's returned. He tells the servants to kill the fatted calf, to put on a celebration and a feast for his son who was lost is now found. His son was dead and now he is alive. This is a picture of God relating to, reconciling with, loving celebrating, rejoicing in his children. We need to understand that. We need to understand that especially as we come to God in prayer. This is who we're coming to. This is who we're bringing our requests to. He delights in us. Christ faced the frown of God's wrath so that what we see is the smile of God's favor. Nothing can separate us from his love. Not anyone, not anything, not even you, not your performance, your failures. Psalm 84:11. for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So we pursue this God as we bring our request to him as we seek after his kingdom and the advancement of it and our place in it and the righteousness that characterizes those who are citizens of the kingdom, knowing that as we ask what is his will for us, clearly we will receive it because he's so good and gracious and his love is so faithful. So ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find, knock, he will open the door to you. He will give you all that's necessary for life as children of the Heavenly Father. I want to read for you the lyrics of a familiar hymn to some children of the Heavenly Father. This is, I want us just to see and recount the blessings, the favor, the goodness of God to his children. And this song, I think, does it well. Children of the Heavenly Father, safely in his bosom gather, not to nestling bird nor star in heaven, such a refuge was ever given. 
God his own doth tend and nourish. In his holy courts they flourish. From all evil things he spares them, all ultimately evil things, right? What God is doing in your life, even though there are tragedies, there are difficulties, there's pain and suffering, ultimately those things are not evil. For the children of God, ultimately those things are good. They result in good. From all evil things he spares them. In his mighty arms he bears them. Neither life nor death shall ever from the Lord his children sever. Unto them his grace he showeth, and their sorrows all he knoweth. Their very hairs he numbers, and no daily care encumbers them that share his every blessing and his help in woes distressing. Praise the Lord in joyful numbers. Your protector never slumbers. At the will of your defender, every foe must surrender. Though he giveth or he taketh, God his children never forsaketh. His the loving purpose solely to preserve them pure and holy. You may not see that purity, that holiness is ultimately what we need sometimes in this life, but God knows better than we do. And that's exactly what he's promising to do, to preserve us pure and holy, to make us righteous, that we'd be people fit for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good gift of grace, this study of prayer in Christ's sermon that we would be able to lay aside all the presuppositions and the unhelpful, tainted ambitions and motives that sometimes characterize our prayers, Father, that we would come to you in humble gratitude, bold confidence even in Christ, knowing that his righteousness has opened the door to your throne of power, your throne of grace. And as we learn to pray according to what Jesus has instructed, Lord, I ask that you would affect the change that needs to take place in us, that you would answer our prayers, that as we ask according to what you have instructed, according to your will as we see it in your word, that you would provide, that you would answer that you would respond in building and growing your kingdom throughout this world and, and, and creating new people that worship you above all else. I pray, Father, for the understanding, the renewing of our mind that helps us to see that there is no punishment, there's no wrath left for us to face, there's no condemnation, only the love that you have for us, for us in Christ. Father, I pray that would condition us as we approach you with our prayers, with our requests, that as we see things the way you see things and ask for what we need in this life, according to your kingdom, according to the righteousness you're producing in us, that we would see you faithful and just to always answer and give us exactly what we need. Lord, I pray that this word would be effective by your spirit in changing us to see your glory, to see your goodness, to see your love more clearly, 
that we might become who we ought to be, reflecting the character of Christ to each other, to the world, showing the real transformation of the gospel for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.